Let's run nation. It's time to get excited. NCA cross country is on Monday, NCA indoor track and field Friday and Saturday and the running warehouse. Let's run.com prediction contests are here. Get your picks in. You can win running warehouse gift certificates. It's pretty easy. we got a picking guide. You don't even have to know much about this. You just pick the top three and the distance races. Go to let's run.com to get your picks in running warehouse, the leader in specialty running for a reason. Thank you. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast and welcome to the craziest week in the history of NCAA distance running. We have not one but two NCAA championships to preview. NCAA Indoors kicks off in Arkansas on Thursday, NCAA Cross Country in Oklahoma State on Monday. Bill Spaulding, who will be calling NCAA Cross for ESPNU, the first televised broadcast of that meet since 2009. He is our guest this week, and we're going to be breaking down that race in great detail. We'll get to to him at the end of the show. Before that, though, we've got some meets to recap as well. There was the badness that was the European Indoor Championships from Poland. We've got the Sound Running Invitational. We saw big wins for Grant Fisher, Emily Sisson, and Matthew Centrowitz opened his 2021 season with what Rojo was claiming, I think the most impressive 340 8th place finish in a 1500 meters ever. So, well then, Robert, welcome to the show. Glad to be uh, joined with you, as always, for this crazy weekend running. Thank you, John. Honored to be here. I think we have to start with a victory lap. <laughs> Folks, we did it. We did it. After years of mouthing off about the terrible broadcasts, Hardly any notice. Found out about an American record attempt on Monday. Less than what, 80 hours later, I was broadcasting it live to the world. We had a we had viewers watching from Brazil. A few technical hiccups in the very first race, got the kinks white. Hope everybody enjoyed it. Seriously. Emmanuel Bohr, thank you. I was a little bit depressed watching the women's race. They're a little bit off pace. I'm like, did I drive all the way down here, buy all this equipment, try to get this broadcast going for nothing? But man, when he hit 3K in 7.48, when all he needed was 2.05, that last 800, John, I thought he was going to break the American record. So I'm glad we were able to do that. It was a fun event. I think we learned a lot. But how cool was that, John? It was awesome. Yeah, Emmanuel Ball, he ran 13.05. Robert was on the ground in Virginia Beach. Weldon and I were broadcasting it remotely. We made it free and available for anyone who came to the site. I had a good time doing it. I was excited. I did think for a minute we were going to see the first sub-13 ever by an American indoors. Ball fell just short, but all in all, a good night for the sport. I'm glad we were able to do it. Now, if we go back for the indoor 10,000 meters, I think we should offer a... I want to fire I want to fire the video crew that cost us hundreds of dollars and just use the two Let's Run.com high school volunteers. Wes was there this time, and Weldon's got another guy from Virginia Beach that wants to volunteer. And I say, I just put up like a Venmo card and just say, come on, people, give $1. And we got to hit, hit these guys up with like some super shoes. We get like 400 bucks. I, I hand these guys their super shoes and we and that's how they're paid. Just suggestion for you. Guys, I think this little deflection. I was on the podcast last week for about 45 seconds. Ratings are down. 
You guys are trying to cover it up for it, trying to d- distract, trying to go into other our other broadcasting thing. Fans, I'm back this week. I'm back. There'll be the voice of sanity will be on this podcast. We'll not have to hear, hear Rojo's outrageous takes all the time and John's uh, what pontificating or something. Glad to be back, guys. Track and field, it, it's it's going well now. Like we got events going on. We got two NCAA championships this week. I mean, maybe we're gonna have a dead period soon after this because all the spring marathons have been punted to the fall. But it was pretty much one year ago this weekend, John, that we almost killed you. We put you on a little plane and flew you out to Albuquerque, New Mexico, for the 2020 NCAA Indoor Championships. And John, have you been on a plane since then? That was my last plane trip. Well, and it was wild. I. You know, Wednesday was the night that Rudy Gobert tested positive and everything started going crazy. Thursday morning was my early morning flight to Albuquerque. I landed there around 2 p.m. in the afternoon. And within two hours, I hadn't even made it to the track yet. Within two hours, they canceled that. And they canceled LA Outdoors as well. And then I was scrambling to get a plane back. I mean, people probably don't want to be hearing about my COVID reminiscences. But yes, that was the last time I was on a plane was my aborted trip to cover NCAA indoors in 2020. No mask either, John, no mask. I'm sorry. And if you had died, would we have been blamed or would Fauci have been blamed? Because Fauci was, you know, telling us not to mask then. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know where the blame would have been apportioned. My cab driver, actually, when I landed, he was like one of the first people I saw in public wearing a mask. Cause you know, things started going crazy. And he's just like, you know, the fir- I think the first thing I said to him was, or the first thing he I said to him was like, I don't have it or whatever. And we both knew what I was talking about even then. So it's pretty crazy to see where we've come since then. But I'm, I'm happy that we have two championships to discuss this weekend. Cab, John. How far do you live from the airport? You should have walked to be safe. Cab, this is in Albuquerque when I landed. And I'm not walking from the bo- airport. Have you been to Boston, Robert? I'm not walking from East Boston through like the Callahan Tunnel to get back to my apartment in Brookline. That's not really feasible. <laughs> Okay, guys, before we get to the previewing this week's weekend's upcoming NCAA action, let's look back first at last week's action. Where do you want to begin? Europeans, sound running invite, Jordan Hissay running badly yet again. I want to start with sound running because we already, we talked about Euros a little bit on the Friday 15 last week. That's subscriber only. We have a 15 minute podcast every Friday previewing the weekend action. Or in that case, we were talking about Jakob Ingebrigtsen's DQ. We thought he was DQ. Then it came out afterwards. He wasn't DQ in the 1500. But we already kind of discussed that. So I'm more interested in discussing sound running, if that's all right with you guys. We haven't done a good enough job promoting the Friday 15. That's an exclusive podcast for LRC subscribers. Go to whatsrun.com slash subscribe to get your private podcast feed. But it, we actually did a video show last Friday. It's not always, it's not every Friday. It's just a lot of Fridays. And actually, VIP members. We're not doing it this Friday. Instead, on Monday, we're going to do a special show starting 12 noon video show to get you ready for the NCAA cross-country competition. So we're going to have a 30-minute preview show that's going to take you right into the ESPNU's 25-minute preview show before the action gets underway. So Friday, 12 noon Eastern. And Monday, Friday, uh, excuse me, 12 noon Eastern. Yeah, I think sound running is a good place to start, but also I think – we still do want to talk about the Firefly 5000. I think a good place to start is with the because that was only one race, two races, men's and women's 5,000 meters. But sort of contrast, we had two fast 5,000 meters. Up first 
on what was it Thursday night? Emmanuel Bohr, a guy not very well known. What is he? Thirty-two years old. Thirty years old. Thirty-two, I believe. Just sort of like I don't even know what. If I was ranking guys in the WCAT program, I would not put him at number one. I wouldn't put him at number two. I would say, I don't know, like the fifth guy in the WCAT program or something. And he goes out there, drops Paul Chalimo, needs a 205 to get the American record final 800 and just doesn't have it. Slows down, runs 1305. Second time ever behind Galen Rupp for an American. And then the very next day out in California, sound running invite, which essentially was... In certain races, it was like Bowerman Track Club, but we had non-Bowerman athletes. I mean, Jesse Williams is putting on some great events, and people are understanding the weather's very good in California. And that race, on paper, the result looks very similar. Grant Fisher blows every, blows Mark Scott away the final 400 meters, runs 13.02. And 13.02, 13.05, pretty close, right? But these races were actually very, very different. It shows you can go about running a low 13-minute 5K very differently. Yeah, and I came away impressed by Bohr because of the strength he showed. I mean, he looked, he was just grinding these laps out and then he hung on, you know, he fell off pace a little bit. He needed that 205, like Robert said, and he only ended up running about 209, I think, for his last 800. But I think I was even more impressed by Fisher because of that closing speed. I mean, that's what that's what gets you on teams is closing fast and closing a 1302 5K in 55 seconds for his last lap. I mean, that's the kind of thing I want to see if you're going to be making an Olympic team this year. So I thought that was very promising. And just, I mean, Grant Fisher, you got to say he's 23 years old and he's now run 27.11 and 13.02. And yeah, okay, he has the super spikes, but still, that's a pretty great spot for him to be at at this point in his career. I mean, 13.02, 27.11, looking like he has a good shot at his first Olympic squad this year. I was very impressed. I think he's you know, he's right where you would want to see him right at this time of year. Well, I guess, you know, we can argue if you peak too early, but I think he's right where you want to see him at this point in his career. Yeah. I mean, these races were very differently. Uh, if Fisher closed in 55, okay. Emmanuel Boer's final 400, he was over 64 seconds. So that's a nine second difference, 400 meters to go. So, I mean, that's pretty crazy. If, he, if we had, you know, superimposed these races over each other, like Boer would be just crushing him with a lap to go, I guess he'd be what six seconds up then and lose. I mean, that would have been kind of crazy to watch, but I mean, that one thing Emmanuel said afterwards is like, I wish we went out a little slower. And I think both these races, I'm not sure. Did sound running have the pacing lights? I think they did. Same, same Robert shaking his head, no pacing lights there, but in Virginia beach, they had these, Firefly pacing mechanism, right? And the interesting thing was... No, Firefly's a recovery device. I forgot the name of the pacing company. I met the guy. Lightspeed Pacing is the name of that company. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into business with this guy because he just he designed it himself. I think every college team in the country should, should do it. He's doing it for free. He's just go, they're paying their, his travel. He's just doing these meets to get the word out there. Wait, he doesn't sell the product? You got to sell it to every meet, man. Come on. I know. Well, I... Uh, when I go into business with them, I'll have this in every college soon. But yeah, I, well, it was totally different. And I think in hindsight, and I said this on the Friday 15, I think it was a mistake. Uh, during the broadcast, it was very much confusing me because I was like, wait a minute, they're behind the pacing light, but they were hitting the splits perfectly and I couldn't understand it. 
And I found out afterwards that Scott Simmons actually had the, the lead pacing light at 1258, not even 1301, which is the American record. And then the second pacing light was 1313. I think in hindsight, they should have done the pacing light at least for the first 1600 slower. I would run it at like 1305 pace with the fastest, maybe even halfway, you know, first, I guess 1600 is just past halfway and then ram it down. Now it's hard when you don't know how far the rabbits are going to go, but ideally you start off a little bit slower and then have the pace going particularly early in the season. Um, you know, and then Bore after the race said, he's like, I wish I hit 3K 752 instead of 748 and just had something to kick. That's how Galen Rupp, you know, did the mark. And I posted this on the message board. Like Jerry Schumacher, I, I used to coach this way at Cornell. I used to say, look, when you finish your best races, you always think you can go faster. You want to train slower to faster. And also you want to race that way early in the season. I'm sure Fisher thinks, and all these people on the message board are like, oh, he easily can run 1258. There's a big thread, like he will have the American record this year. And I disagreed with that. I said, look, there's a much higher probability that Grant Fisher does not break 13 minutes this summer than that it is that he breaks the American record. Because if he's going to break the American record, he's going to have to go out a lot harder. You talked about the nine seconds, Weldon. He was nine seconds behind Bohr's split at 4,200 meters. 13 flat was never in the cards at the sound running invite. And I was paying attention to that because remember last week I was very critical of Mark Scott for skipping Europeans. So I assumed I'm like, how is he going to break 13 if he's going out in 13, 15 pace? And the answer was they're not even despite an amazing close by Fisher. One thing I'm curious about Fish's race. I mean, I think we were, we were all pretty impressed by it still, though that he was able to squeeze it down at the end. I, I do agree with you, Robert, that, you know, I would if I had to bet money on it, I'd say Grant Fisher probably won't break thirteen again this year because how many races is he going to go into Europe for? I, I I don't know. Especially if he makes the Olympics, I wouldn't expect him to have a long European season. It's harder to run sub thirteen in those you know diamond leagues because they're races. You know, they're not just perfect time trials set up like this. So he might be fitter in the summer, but he's not going to probably have the same opportunity to break thirteen. What I'm curious about though. Grutfish, he now has the Olympic standard in the 5K and the 10K. We now know the 10K, they've switched the schedule. The 10K is first at the trials. If you're Grant Fisher, do you run both events at the trials or do you say, no, the 5K is probably my stronger event. I'm just going to bail on the 10K. Because right now he's one of six Americans with the 10K standard. Yes, you run both, John. He wants to be an Olympian and his chances in either event are sort of marginal at best. So... I don't know. Let's say let's say he even has a good chance. Let's say you're like 80% chance if you just run one event, but you're like, I don't know. Actually, I'd have to do the math to add it up, what it makes out to. But generally, it's advantageous to run both. If you can take a shot at both events clean, you know, with no overlap, which would be the situation here. So I think you should run both. I think you misspoke. Marginal at best, he's got a very good shot in the 10,000, I think, is a little bit wrong. But yeah, you, I think you have to do both. Um you know, I actually, I was so focused on Scott, I even forgot Fisher was in this race. Uh, he just basically did none of the work until the end and then kicked. But there, again, on the message board, people were debating, you know, oh, this is great. Look, he's an amazing talent. I mean, he's a full locker national champion in high school. He broke four, sub four in the mile. He's one of the biggest talents. He's the type of guy that you would expect to be, you know, one of our top, uh, you know, American-born contenders that we've ever produced. But this is John. You said whether he breaks thirteen this summer, and that was another thing that I was talking about. The European, first of all, how many meets is he going to get with the weather like that, John? Mid fifties weather. Most European meets are not mid fifties. 
it's hot. You know, the world record was set in high 70 degree temperature. Kipchoge, uh, excuse me, uh, Joshua Chepter guy, under those same conditions, he would have easily, not easily, he would have broken 1230. So in my mind, to, to be the best of the best, this is scary to think. Fisher has a long way to go. He's 27 seconds behind Chepter guy right now. He's 15 seconds behind his own teammate, Mohamed. So, I mean, where is he even on the BTC team in terms of 5,000 meter personal best? He's fifth. Well, he's behind. He's behind Woody. He's be- Kincaid. He's behind Centrowitz. He's behind Lemong. He's behind Ahmed. Jager also ran thirteen oh two, I believe. I don't know if he was faster or not. Okay, I mean this Fisher thing. I guess it's are you a glass half full or a glass half empty guy? He wins the race, blows away Mark Scott, has a good finish. That's pretty good. Fifty five seconds, probably in a thirteen. 13- something race in Europe will get you close to metal. Probably not good enough. Um, but warmer conditions, that sort of stuff, probably not for sure. So I don't know. It's, it's like, how do you look at this? And also it's the era of super shoes. So, but he won the race convincingly. That's the thing I'm most impressed with. You know, then do we need to go back to the firefly 5,000 Paul Chulimo runs? Was it 13, 13 or something like that? Do we need to like subtract time from him? Because this is super shoes. So is this a 1320 effort and we shouldn't be impressed? I mean, like, I just don't know how to really evaluate these things. And then John earlier said, you guys said, oh, it's a better chance he doesn't break 13 this year. Well, if you're not breaking 13, I'm sorry. Why are we talking about him? Who cares? I mean, I mean I'm becoming this total elitist the more I cover the elite sport. But are we trying to? Are, are we? do we want Galen Rupp type athletes who are competing on a world stage? Or do we want... B teamers hoping to sneak onto an Olympic team because well, the, if, you're, if you're not a well under 13 minute guy, you're not a medal chance anymore. Well under 13. Oh my God. So we just can't talk about anyone who's not going to medal at the Olympics. I mean, we've, we've been saying for months, the 5k is going to be really hard to medal at. I think we can get excited though, excited though about one of the U S biggest young talents running a breakthrough race 1302. I think this is his first professional win. Like, and I'm not saying he, isn't going to break 13 this summer, though I think it's unlikely. I'm saying, sorry, I'm saying I think he can get in sub-13 shape, but he might not have the opportunity. He might not run any Diamond Leagues over the summer. That's what Bauman's done in the past. So, look, I think this is this is a promising step for a guy who has a good shot at making the Olympic team this summer. That's why we're discussing him. Like, okay, he's not as good as Joshua Chepta guy. It doesn't mean that we can't talk about how he's doing. I should point out there are a couple other guys. I mean, Sean McGordy ran 13.06 in this race. Joe Klecker ran 13.06. Was he wearing the super shoes as well? I, I, you know, I'm not great at IDing shoes, but you know he's sponsored by On. What was he running th- that time in? And then Kiribati Rasa also got the Olympic standard in fifth, running for Hoka One One. John, please, new let's run on company policy. Did you not get the memo for, sent out from Weldon? It was sent out about a half hour ago. If you're not in the top nine all time in U.S. history, you're not allowed to be talked about in the podcast. So only nine Americans have ever broken 13 minutes, and. Unless you've done that, Weldon should not be talked about. We, we can never talk about Weldon pacing Paul Radcliffe again either, since that was not an elite performance. You you guys are you guys are just like fanboys. I mean, it's sort of crazy. I guess I, I'm an I'm an elitist. I'm a now on the East Coast. I'm an East Coast elitist. People have been trying to like claim that for me all the time. Now I'm no longer like wildcatting Texan. I'm an East Coast elitist, and I want to see something good. We probably should even educate our viewers and international viewers who Grant Fisher is. They don't even know who this guy is. In case you guys don't know, Grant Fisher. I think as a freshman, he went NCAA 5K. Sophomore. But that was a slow race. He's very good in slow races. That was a 1435. 
And since then, you know, he's like runner up at NCAAs. He's pretty good. He's in the Bowerman Track Club. You know, and he was like, you know, made world juniors in what, the 1500 even? Yeah. So, you know, a pretty good talent. Actually, what's the age difference between him and Drew Hunter? He is one year ahead of Drew in school. I think he's only about, I think Grant was born in April 97. I think Drew was September 97. Wow. Yeah. So, okay, Drew. And these young talents, at some point you need to be around 13 minutes or under. So this will be interesting. Are you ready? I have received an email from one of the most, I don't know, prominent track and field fans in the world about Grant Fisher. Are you guys ready for this? Lay it on me. And this person said I could use this. This is our Malcolm Gladwell segment of the week. The email was from esteemed former podcast guest, Malcolm Gladwell. Subject line, super shoes. I'll try to talk like Malcolm. And then it continues on because he's a man of a few words. Super shoes are destroying track. This is getting insane. Suddenly out of nowhere, Fisher runs 1302. And I followed up with Malcolm asking, hey, can I use this on the podcast? And he wrote back, of course you can use the email. I hate this because we're erasing history, literally. Generations of performances are being marginalized because track has apparently decided to legalize the shoe equivalent of PEDs. I mean, people were, were comparing Fisher's 1302 to Ben True's Diamond League 1302. They literally have nothing in common, all caps. And so Malcolm actually writes all lowercase except for PEDs, uppercase, and nothing in common is all caps. First word of each sentence is lowercase. So there you have it, John. Praise for his favorite runner of all time, Ben True. And he's not as impressed with 1302. Well, just for the record here, Ben True's 1302 did not come in a Diamond League. It came at Peyton Jordan in 2014 where it was, you know, pretty time trial type conditions as well, right? This is classic because I love Malcolm's books, but I've read since then that a lot of them are just sort of based on mythology and not actually scientifically accurate. He's great at telling a story, whether it's true or not. This reminds me of memory. Yes, well, Ben's true. I compared the Fisher race to Ben True's race in the forum. I was like, it's very similar. Like Ben True ran 1302 in a time trial and he's never run faster. Okay, first of all, that's a bit unfair how to like summarize Malcolm's books. Like there's some like, critical discussion that it's like fantasy but that is kind of funny the the, the 1302 because i'm like wow at, at randall's island that's actually pretty impressive the more i think about it but so yeah my counter to malcolm would be yes i think we totally should factor in the shoes and grant's previous pr was 1311 i think from last summer in super shoes in portland and so i assume the weather wasn't perfect this race is even more perfectly paced everything he kicks well so i to me, this race isn't that much different. I guess at some point, nine seconds is a big difference. But I think, hey, I crazy know, theory here, guys. He's fitter than he was last summer. He's been in altitude tra- camp training hard. If you train for a while and you're 23 years old, you might make a breakthrough of nine seconds. Doesn't seem that crazy to me. I, I don't think this came out of I agree with you, John. It didn't come out of nowhere. The kid's 22 last year. He runs 13.11. Him running 13.02 is not out of nowhere. But anyways, guys, I, for the record, can I say I love Gladwell's books. I think it's great that he's a, he's a track fan. I'm not trying – just because I think this isn't totally out of no, nowhere. I agree largely with his criticisms of the shoes. I, I mean, look, the shoes are here to stay. But my main complaint about the shoes is something 
that a lot of people still don't understand is it's not, yes, the shoes are racing the connections to the history, but it's still not a level playing field. And some people have them, some people don't. And that's the biggest problem. One final thing on super shoes. I don't want to get this on the record. Uh, maybe it's just publish an article and let's run saying this as much because this was in the wall street journal, but it was like a kind of almost a throwaway line. And I didn't even realize the significance of it. And it was by Rachel Bachman of the wall street journal. And I was emailing her about this and she had a line in this article. It's talking about Grant Holloway setting a world indoor record in non super shoes, essentially. And there was a line in there. that said, Nike for its part said in a statement that because of a change in world athletics rules, it won't produce the planned Viperfly sprinting spike. And I asked her, I'm like, wait, I've never seen this. Or like, where was this statement? They released a statement. She's like, they released a statement to me. So it's official. Nike has said, we essentially is admitting we could have made a better spike that would have, that would be better than anything out there and people would be able to run faster. So now the only thing holding people back are the rules. So let's not pretend the shoes don't make a difference. The world athletics rules are holding people back from possibly breaking Usain Bolt's records and everything. So now it's only a matter of how much technology do you have in your hands? And if you don't have it, you're in an unfair disadvantage. So I thought that was pretty important acknowledgement for Rachel to get from Nike. Okay. Hopefully that brings to a close our shoe segment of the week. There are some other results I want to talk about, though, from the sound running. Let's go men's 1500. Josh Kerr destroys the field. Like, this is not even close. He just blows everyone away the last lap, uh, wins in 335. And then, Robert, I don't know if I missed something. Like, I watched this race. I thought I understood what happened. But then talking to Robert afterwards, he says he's a, he's amazed by Matthew Centrowitz's run. Matthew Centrowitz finished eighth place in this race. He ran 340. And... To hear Robert tell it, it's the most impressive race he's run since his gold medal in Rio. So, Robert, can you explain yourself? Why is this? Why are you so blown away by Centro getting his doors blown off in the last lap? John, you're trying to exaggerate my take on this race. I just thought, well, here we go. We have a, a, a big race. What are the storylines for this race? The most important storyline six months from now is that Matthew Centrowitz, who has not raced in a long time, was racing. So I was watching him with his keen eye and I thought he looked pretty good. He got out in a good spot. Like he always does. The pace was not particularly hot early on. He was in like third or fourth and he stayed there until the last three or 400 when he just had like a 59 last lap, everybody blew by him and he finished mid pack eighth out of 14 finishers. So it wasn't a good time. Seven guys ended up passing him. Kerr blows everybody away but I think a lot of people, and immediately two threads in the message board started up saying Macintosh was done. And I've got the stats in the week that was. He's got a ton of time until the Olympics. And in 2018, he opened up in his exact same time. He opened up in 340. Admittedly, in 2018, they didn't have super shoes back, super spikes back then. And also the race was not a 335 race like this one was. I think it was a 337 race. He actually got beat by Jacob Ingebrigtsen. In 339 that race. race, actually, Robert. 339, okay. So he didn't get beat by as badly. He was you know, a little bit more competitive, but the time was similar. Twenty In 2018, that was May 3rd. 51 days later, he won the USAs, and 27 days after that, he ran 331. So 78 days after running 340, he's shown in the past he can run 331. Well, he's got 113 days until the Olympic trials. If he's in 331 shape, I'm sorry, he's making the team. 
Yeah. And he's got another 41 days for the Olympics. So if he doesn't have any hiccups between now and then, which obviously is an issue, I, I think he's going to be fine. So the fact that he was racing to me healthy enough to race was a good sign. The fact that he – that's all I need to know. Contrast that to some of these women's running races. I told you last week on this very show, or maybe it was the Friday show, but on the podcast, I said, look, I will tell you if Molly Huddle will make the Olympic team after this week. And I watched her. She didn't look very good. Actually, I don't think she even ran the race, John. So here you heard it here first. Molly Huddle will not make the 2020 Olympic team in 2021. Yeah, she ran the race and ended up dropping out, Robert. I just the point on Centro, I think, yeah, the bigger point to me is that he ran the race. The fact that he is out there racing, like, yeah, his last lap wasn't where it needs to be. I'm not worried about that. But I, I wasn't particularly impressed by how he ran, but the fact that he's out there running, I mean, how many times in his career have we seen Matthew Centrowitz around this time of year, he's banged up or he's not racing or there's something wrong with him? And how many times does he fail to make the team? Never. He Every year since 2011, when he won his first U.S. title, he always makes the team. He always shows up. He knows how to get his body ready for these meets. So I'm not worried about him. I, and then talking about Molly Huddle, Robert, yeah, she did run this race. She dropped out, and I agree. She didn't look good. I'm worried. I mean, I picked her on this podcast a few weeks ago to make the Olympic team in the 10K, and I think I immediately regret that decision because – you know, you look at the other results. Emily Sissom ran this race and looked fantastic. She ran one in a PR of 14.55. Ali Buhalski got second, 14.57, a huge breakout race for her. Alicia Monson, even Gwen Jorgensen got the Olympic standard P, P for her, 15.08. So big run. Huddle has a lot of competition to overcome. She's 36. She's getting up there in age. And she's been training for the marathon the last few years. I just think... I don't know. I know she's the American record holder in the 10K, but she she has a long way to go, and this did this did not look like a good result for her. Sissom, meanwhile, I'm very optimistic about now. I mean, that's exactly what you want to see from her getting back onto the track, and I don't even think the 5K is her best event. I think that's the 10K. So 14.55 running the way she did. She looked in control. She ran down Kaladi and Alicia McColgan, who had broken away early. I mean, it came away very high on her chances. I guess I should chime in to make it fair and point out what's the world record. I don't even know what the real world record is. 1406. Do you remember? I actually, did you actually remember the world record? Well, then do you? I was going to say 1411. Is that the old one? Used to be. Okay. Wow. She really crushed it. But then, you know, Robert starts pointing out that Jeff Gag probably could have run 1230 in these conditions. They're both about the same amount off percentage wise. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, well, and you're, you're not allowed to talk about this. These people are all spares. We're going to kick you out of our NCAA preview later because pretty much none of those athletes are going to be, you know, meddling at the Olympics. So, you know, I don't know if you're allowed to have an opinion on this race. Oh, wow. Speaking of sort of spares and stuff, oh, this isn't going to – I shouldn't have used that word because what I'm going to say next. I was on the USA TFCCCA site or the NCA site, and it was showing like the NCA Division One Championships, Division Two Championships, Division Three Championships. Do you guys have you guys heard about the Division Three Championships? No. Baby Nationals has been canceled. That's the point. No fucking outrage. Excuse my language. Like what? I I guess none of these like NESCAT conferences were are even like going on. Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was just like, what? I was gonna make some th- joke thread on Let's Run, like Baby Nationals canceled. I figured it wouldn't go over well, but I think it just shows. Division three sports are probably closest to the Ivy League, right? 
And who who waved the white white flag more than anyone to COVID this year? Ivy League and Division Three, I guess. I, I don't know if other Division Three sports are going on, but like no track. I was kind of surprised to see that because Division Two is having a championship. Well, here's the cynical view, Weldon. Division One wants to have its basketball tournament because that's the money maker, and you can't have a basketball tournament. You know, you got to be able to keep up appearances. So you have all the other sports, and you say we're having all sports. So they're safe, it's COVID-friendly or whatever. We will also have basketball. If you have only basketball, but you cancel indoor track at the D1 level, if you cancel cross-country and all that stuff, then people are like, well, this is just a naked money grab. And which, yeah, we already kind of know that's what the NCAA tournament is. But I think that's the justification. Whatever. I don't care. As long as we're having the NCAA basketball tournament, as long as we're having sports... I'm also confident there's going to be an Olympics. I don't think there'll be foreign fans. Hopefully there's foreign journalists. You and Robert might be in a little trouble this year, guys. But, and hey, Connecticut, I'm in a free state. We're opening up for dinner. I think it's March 29th or March 19th. 100% capacity in restaurants. You guys want to come have a let's run.com dinner? Maybe when the weather's warmer, well then. We, we, we could probably do it outside. 60 degrees yesterday or today, supposedly. It doesn't look like it, though. Meanwhile, I'm inside recording a podcast. Oh, Robert, Robert's giving a look. Robert's giving a look. He's pissed off. Robert likes to play COVID both ways, and now he probably thinks I'm being too cavalier. He finally got out of his, out of his house, went down to this event. Robert, have you recovered? You had to. Re- it really would have sucked if Robert had gotten COVID going to cover this one event he went to. I'm definitely cautious about COVID. And I, when I went to this event, I thought, wow, I exposed myself to like, I, I spent a decent amount of time. I mean, more than six feet away, but in an indoor stadium, I was around a lot more people than I normally am for a longer period of time. So I thought, I'm, I'm, there's no way I'm getting COVID in any aspect of my life, except maybe the grocery store. But I just, I pass by people. So it was a little bit nerve wracking. But if you open up 100%, folks, people on the left and the right, let's don't be idiots. Just because you open up 100% doesn't mean you need to go run into a restaurant and sit next to complete strangers at a bar and and talk loudly next to them. You can do that, but you don't have to do that. And it works both ways. People on the left, just because the states are open 100%, it doesn't mean they're all going to get COVID. So if you can eat outside, eat outside. If you can socially distance, still do that until the numbers go down. Thanks for the advice, Robert. But you know what I really like hearing you talk about is track and field and giving, you know, unhinged rants or some somewhat semi-hinged rants about meets like the European Indoor Championships. I much prefer that to the COVID discussion. Please tell me you have a hot take or some knowledge you want to share about Euro Indoors from, indoors from last week. Well, I think that there's two stories, well, three big stories there. And I, 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 I preached them all in the week that was. Jacob Mimbrickson completing the double. I'm glad that a star went to the event, decided it was better off competing for a, a gold medal than running a time trial. and. But the DQ and the non-DQ, to me, this is a, is an important story moving forward. We've long said for on, on this on our website podcast that the rules of track and field need to be changed. Like you make an infraction, and the only option is the DQ. So I don't like how the officials have two options: ignore the written rules or DQ. We need to have something in between. You guys don't like my option of. If you step over the rail, but don't pass anybody, or if you graze the line on the steeplechase, but don't pass anybody, let's don't DQ somebody. Let's just give them a small time penalty. I think half a second so we can move them on to the thing. 
I think that's better than actually ignoring the written rule book and thinking that certain stars don't get DQ'd. You know, if you're really super high profile in the media, like Mo Farah and Jacob Ingebrigtsen, you don't get DQ'd. But if you're not that important, like Ezekiel Kimboy or Colleen Quigley, you do do get DQ'd. So to me, this is the thing. You know, it's like in football, we have different rules. We have pass interference. We have uncatchable balls. And we also have, you know, defensive holding. It's not – there's there's three options for similar infractions. Robert, you threw out this idea of a time penalty, and Weldon and I both just think this is ludicrous. Because what – so what happens here if Jakob Ingebrigtsen and they say, okay, you're docked like three-tenths of a second. What if it's a really close race at the end? He barely holds off Lewandowski. And then it's like, oh, yeah, Ingebrigtsen was subtracting 0.3 from your time about some – time penalty, some violation, you didn't even know you could, like, okay, he knew he stepped in the infield. Some people, if you're stepping on the curve on a steeple, you might not have any idea you actually stepped on that line and then you're docked three-tenths of a second at the end. I just think it's a ridiculous solution. John, thank you. I mean, I'm going to have a, my own rant section. It's just a not a good solution at all because then you still have the same things. What if you're legitimately pushed on the inside? Then you'd still be debating, like, should we dock the time? Should we not dock the time? Like, docking time? How about having a rule unless someone gets a material advantage? And I mean, I don't mean if you run six inches shorter because it's on a turn on turn three of a 15-lap race. Who cares? To me, that's not a material advantage. So make it clear, if, if it's just like an incidental step on the infield, whatever it is, and it's not deemed to materially impact the race, and maybe that depends on what phrase the race is, but we use some judgment, carry on. And so essentially... I think the vast majority of people watching this, it isn't a world record or anything, would say this should not be a DQ. Good racing, good race, carry on, gold medal, Jakob Ingebrigtsen. Well, I don't know if the vast majority would agree with that. Well, I do think I think the best the solution you just suggested is the best solution in that we allow the officials to have a little bit judgment and look, maybe this ends up badly, but I think that's better than just like Robert said, either. DQing people for just these very minor marginal infractions that don't influence the race, or just blatantly ignoring the rule book as they did with Mo Farah in the 2017 World Championship 10,000 meter final. So I think you've got to give them some wiggle room. But like this this incident with Ingebrigtsen, I mean, you can watch that and you can say, hey, this might have been because he was trying to pass this guy on the inside. And you know, it's a, it's a tough thing to legislate, but I don't think that should be legal. You shouldn't be able to be able to, to use this if you're boxed in in a bad position to try to go by someone. So, but then I think you can also say, well, it's 200 meters into the race. Did it really have a material advantage? I don't think so. Yeah, I like the outcome. I like what Weldon said. I mean, I think that if you're not really greatly impacting the race, but it's kind of a slippery slope, that's why I think they should rewrite the rule book. The other big stories that I liked from Europeans were Patrick Dobek. This guy was a, also ran as a 400 hurdler one month ago. He never run an 800 race as a pro. He's now won the Polish championships and the European championships. It's amazing. I made a video about it. We'll put it in the show notes. But it's just incredible. Now, people point out in the message board that other people have moved up from the 400 hurdles and that he may not get a lot better. There's a guy named Chris Geisling, I think, who ran for the Hoka NJNY, he ran 146 very shortly after picking up the 800, never ran any faster than 146. I'm not saying this guy's going to be the next Donovan Brazier or David Radisha, but I just thought it was really cool that this guy 
just picked up the event and was able to see an opening on the inside past the entire field and then win the thing. I mean, it's just really cool. So congrats off to Mr. Dobeck. And then Kelly Hodgson's again. I mean, she's 19. We all get a nothing mo. Well, guess what? Great Britain's got their own version of it. So congrats to her. Yeah, I agree with you, Robert. Those are basically the two things I was interested in as well. And Dobek, I mean, Dobek ran 146, but he ran it indoors in a championship final, you know, after two days of prelims. Like to me, that's that shows you he does have room for improvement. Uh, I, I don't think that improvement necessarily means, you know, Olympic medal, but that's pretty darn good. And Hodgkinson, yeah, I mean, one, she's run 159.0 this year. She won this with a big negative split. I mean, certainly with, you know, with uh, Semenya and Nian Saba and Wambui gone from the 800, she's looking like she's a potential Olympic finalist. I mean, she has a very big ceiling. Like you said, she's basically the same age as the thing, Mo. I thought another cool story, I didn't realize this until I read the week that was, so hat tip to Robert Johnson, was, I don't even know how to say her name, Amy Eloy Mark. Is that right? How do you say this, John? Amy Eloise Markov, I think. Okay. Amy Eloise Markov. There we go. Um, she ran, former Washington runner. She's now with the Reebok Track Club. She won the gold in the 3,000 meters. I know Robert was very critical of Mark Scott skipping this need to go run some random time trial, but she was only seventh at the New Balance Indoor Grand Prix, and I think that got her into the meet. Like her time was fast enough there to qualify. I think they went off time qualifying. She goes, she runs for Great Britain, John, and she runs a big PB to get the gold. I mean, this is someone who probably won't ever make an Olympics. Maybe she will now, but. I think it, it, it shows some people, and maybe it depends on what tier you're at, they jump at the opportunity to go run for their country, and no one would expect her to do anything, and she gets a gold. Whereas Mark Scott, I think a lot of people would say, oh, this is a great test for him. You know, what can he do against Jakob? Instead, he skips it to go run this meet. And, you know, traveling across the continent from the West Coast, it's not easy. But I just thought this was really cool because I was like, what? When I read it, I'm like, oh, wow, good for her. Okay, guys, before we preview NC Indoor and Cross Country – should we depress ourselves and talk about a few things that are going to get me to rant? I love the Rojo rants. Bring them on. Okay. Play the theme music. We're going to talk about NC cross country preview at the end of the show, Bill Spalding, but they had the conference championships last week and it's still blowing my mind that the University of Oregon did not enter a full women's team. To me, this is disgraceful. I know that they had to focus. The, the administrators should have never put cross-country and track and field two days apart at the national level. That's terrible. That should have never been done. And I'm glad that, that some school I, – I, at the beginning of this thing, I was a little bit upset that some schools were focusing on indoor and some were focusing cross and not doing both. But it's probably in the best interest of the student-athletes. But come on, enter a full team. There's a huge intramural team at, at Oregon – with women that are coached by the old coach, Tom Heineman. I'm sure they would love to, to put on the Oregon single for a weekend and finish and give that team a, a team score. And then the men, they only ran five runners. They did record a team score. They finished fourth. And we don't know this for a fact, but John is pretty confident that they did not declare that team for the national championships. So Cooper Terry and them, they don't have to run it. That's fine. Although I don't know why they wouldn't run NCAA cross. It's two days after the track championships. So why not try it? But why in the hell would Oregon run the NCAA cross country championships 
There's five guys that ran. These aren't the greatest of guys. One of them, I actually looked him up. I didn't even know him. He was a Cornell guy. He's like an 850-something steepler. I'm sure he's dreaming. He's always dreamed his whole life of running the NCAA championships. Oregon, the athletes, the sport is not just about the administrators and winning. It's about the student athlete experience. And there's five guys that were on the team that I'm sure that I would want, they would want to love run at the NCAA championships. Now, maybe again, I don't know the whole story. We haven't had it confirmed. Maybe for some reason, these athletes said we don't want to run NCAs. I can't imagine that's true. If it is, I stand corrected. But otherwise I think it's disgraceful that they wouldn't enter the NCAA championships to let these student athletes have the experience of running there, even if they finish 28th or 30th or whatever. So shame on you, Oregon. Yeah, Robert, I asked Robert Johnson, the Oregon coach, about this in the NCAA track press conference a couple of days ago, and he see, he didn't totally seem to understand the question. Maybe I didn't phrase it well enough. He, so I didn't get a totally straight answer out of him. But I agree with you. They Look, I'm not saying Oregon 100% would have got in, but fourth at Pac-12s without Cooper or Cole Hawker, I think they would have a decent chance of being selected. And one of their individuals, Jackson Messler, actually did get selected. So he will be running NCAA cross. But yeah, like, I know, look, I don't think Cocker and Tia, I, you said, oh, why wouldn't they double back? Well, both of those guys are going to be doubling. Like, Hawker is doing the mile 3K at NCAA indoors. Cooper is doing the 3K DMR. I totally get if you just want to say, hey, we're not going to run them again in a 10K two days later on a tough course. That makes sense to me. What doesn't make sense to me, though, like you said, is, if they qualified without those guys, let the other guys run at the meet. It's crazy to me. And I think Texas may have done the same thing. Edric Floriel said that they were also, after the cross-country season in the fall, he told the cross-country team, like, this was your last race. You won't be running again. You know, we're going all in on track. And again, doesn't totally make sense to me. Like, if you have cross-country runners that get selected and you don't have anyone at the NCAA indoor meet, I think they do have one 800. They have one guy in the mile, but... Otherwise, like, why wouldn't you run NCAA cross? It's not like they're running NCAA indoors, the rest of the team. And John, why do you think they chose not to declare? Or what prompted you to even think this? I just would assume everyone would declare. I wouldn't even ask the question. I've been told by someone on the committee that selected the teams that there were a couple schools who did not declare for the meet. And if you look at the teams who didn't get in Oregon and Texas are sort of the two. And also their coaches did admit, they both said we went all in on, on track. That was our decision. And again, I do get that, but if you're going all in on track, but then you have other athletes who aren't running indoor NCAA indoors in the track and they could run a cross country race this weekend. What do you have to lose? Okay. Before I get too upset, but I mean, uh, that was one thing and you can say it wasn't the world's greatest coach if you want, but that's one thing I never forgot was, Every kid you're coaching, this is their dream, their passion. Even if they're the 15th guy normally on a normal year for Oregon, they would get to run NCAs this year, and they don't because for some reason, the I, I don't know why. But let's go to another thing that's depressing me. Last week, somehow, John, you found out there's a tweet put out that there's going to be an Ethiopian marathon trials. They're going to run a 40K race, and if you don't run it, you're not going to the Olympics in the marathon. And they give you one month to get ready for it. Like, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Like, I said the best way to hold the trials without holding a marathon is to hold a 30K race the last possible day you can before the trial. So if that's three weeks, six weeks, whatever, hold a 30K race. But you need to get people time to train for it and get ready. You don't announce it on March 5th that you're going to run a race at the beginning of April. And by the way, you need to be in shape. Yeah, it's ludicrous, Robert. And it seems like a lot of the agents and athletes won't. I mean, there maybe had been some rumblings, but 
they weren't, you know, they weren't preparing for this. If you're going to have a full marathon, you need to announce it months in advance. You know, the U.S. You get the U.S. The U.S. knows for years in advance there's going to be a tr- marathon trials in the winter. So this is crazy. The latest I've heard from, uh, you know, a source who would know about this sort of thing is it seems like it might not be a 40k race anymore. So hopefully that means it's going to be. S- a shorter distance i think there's still a lot to be worked out like this doesn't i haven't seen the official i saw this from a tweet and this is a guy who's fairly plugged in in ethiopia and i confirmed it with the agents like they they say this thing seems like it's going to happen but the federation has not been totally forthcoming i don't know it's a mess though i mean remember four years ago kenya tried to do this they announced they were going to have a marathon trials like right at the last minute and then everyone was like no this is insane you need to give these athletes a chance to prepare they ended up backtracking on that. But I do think it's, I mean, look, I want Bekele to get the chance to be selected for this team. And I think, you know, this one month to prepare to run this trials race is kind of ridiculous. But yeah, it, it certainly could have been handled, but this whole situation could have been handled better. And while I'm getting depressed, Jordan say raced again. And yet again, she couldn't break 74 minutes for the half marathon. She goes to 220. Basically, two twenty-one flat marathon or two twenty-fifty-one. Seventy-four minutes should not be hard for her. I mean, who says it was hard? She won the race. Maybe she was just doing it, you know, as a workout. This is the Woodlands like half marathon in Texas. But I, I agree. Until she starts running something noteworthy, I'm not really going to. I don't know. We, we, she got to. She has to drop a, a fast performance for us to be interested in her again. I think. But I'm glad, A, that she's racing. I, I, I read some of her Instagram stuff. I mean, it looks like she was trying to race. So, A, she's healthy enough to race. And, B, this is a wake-up call. I mean, I kind of wish Bekele over the last 10 years had, would race a little bit more often just so he'd get a little bit embarrassed and realize where he was, you know, stay in shape. But, I mean, Jose is not obviously the same case as unmotivated Bekele over the years or injured Bekele. So, anyways, all right, John. We've got Bill Spalding on at the end of the show talking to across country. Let's break down the NCAA indoor meet real quick. I just read your preview earlier this morning. Fantastic stuff. Seems to me that you're most excited for the men's mile. Yeah, I just think you look at the guys entered here. You've got a 350 miler. A 19-year-old American has run 350 in the mile. Cole Hawker, he's running. Sam Tanner, who is 20 from New Zealand. He's He won the New Zealand 1500 champion. He was the New Zealand 1500 champ as an 18-year-old. He's running. He broke the NCAA record in the 1500 earlier this year at the New Balance Indoor Grand Prix. And then you've got a couple other guys, you know, who just could be factors. Lucas Bonds from BYU. He comes back. He's barely back from his LDS mission to the Ivory Coast. And he comes and runs 355 and is right behind Santana. That was pretty ridiculous. Elliot Kipsang of Alabama split 351 on the DMR. I mean, I just think the the Hawker versus Tanner showdown is going to be really exciting and I'm going with Tanner do you have like to me he just has sort of I've seen him more in championship races but I'm fascinated to see what Hawker does because really what we've seen from him so far has been kind of time trials him and Tia and that's because we haven't had these championship races now we finally get to see them in the crucible of competition against the top guys in the the NCAA one of the fastest guys in NCAA history in, in Sam Tanner. So I'm excited to see what happens here. Yeah, I was getting the running warehouse NCAA prediction contest ready. We got a blowout 
contest this time. Indoors and cross country combined. It's pretty easy. We got a picking guide. You pick your top three. Perfect score, $200,000. Hey, just pick the top three. I think in the cross country, men's and women's races and teams, that's $2,000. Come on, that can't be that hard, people. If you want to make it a little more interesting, you should play. But one, like you see Oregon's just stacked. I mean, they got so many guys, they kind of decide what events to do. But uh, when I was picking this event, the mile, I wasn't sure what to do. And then I was like, do I do Tanner or Hawker or Bonds? What is that the name? Bonds? It's cool. The Bondsinator? That's his new nickname. And I was totally between Tanner and Hawker. And I kind of thought about it. And I'm like, Hawker somehow manages to finish always like half a stride behind his own teammate, Cooper Tier. So I'm like, well, if he never beats his teammate, how is he going to win the NCAA title? So I went with Tanner. But this could be a breakout race because now that Hawker, maybe just mentally, he just thinks he can't beat Tier. But what if he becomes an NCAA champion? And then it's like, F this, man. I'm the big man on campus. See you, Cooper Tier. Well, I just think, I also don't know, is this guy even a miler? Like, he remember, he almost beat Centro in that 5K at the sound running meet. He's run 746, which is ex- exceptional for 3K. Uh, he was a footlocker champ in high school, though, so I kind of thought of him as, like, 5K being his future event. But, again, we haven't seen him on the championship stage, and he's running the mile, and then he's actually doubling back for the 3K, which probably isn't going to do much. That's only, like, an hour in between now that they condense the schedule. But, yeah, is this guy a miler or 3K, 5K? What's his best event? I'm just – I can't wait to see what he does in the, in this race. Well, John, I, I still remembered – being at Hayward Field and telling someone how another Oregon duck, Matthew Centrowitz, you know, was a 5,000 meter runner. And this person suggested that he was a miler. And I kind of laughed. I guess they won that one. Oh, you still got time. He's run 13 flat. I mean, you know, you never know, Weldon. He's like this Polish guy. He just needs to move up in distance. He told himself back. He may be an Olympic champion, but that was a very slow race. He could be a 1230 guy at 5K. Uh, but yeah, we got some other events. I mean, the thing Moe's in the 400, that's, I think she could get the American record there. She's run 50.52. The American record is, and the collegiate record is 50.34 by Kendall Ellis. So could she go sub 50? I mean, probably not, but she's so young and she's been improving so rapidly that, and that, I mean, I, I think that track's pretty fast too. I don't know. I'm excited to see what she does because any race with the Thing Mo in, in it is pretty exciting as well. Yeah, the Thing most thing's kind of crazy. If she gets the absolute American record, she'll have that. She'll have the American 600 record. And yet everyone thinks of her as an 800-meter runner, which is kind of crazy. But she, finally this year, she dropped the 158. And then I think she said on Instagram or Twitter, like, I'm an 800-meter runner. And she thinks of herself as that way, but like her range of speed and talent and is amazing like if she's the american record holder at 400 i guess her chance for gold is still so much better at 800 i mean she if she can take that up to 800 she'd be an 800 meter gold medalist at the olympics i think in that but at some point you know you start getting close to 49 flat like how much better can you get then you're talking double medal threat yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty heady stuff for her. I just think I. I mean, I look at eight hundred. I'm like, oh, she's not that far off from RJ Wilson in terms of her time. And I look at the four hundred, like Shawnee Miller. Actually, Shawnee Miller Weibo though is going to be doing the two hundred at the Olympics. I guess Samuel Eid Nasser is back. Has been reinstated, so she's going to be pretty hard to beat in the four hundred. And again, that that gets me on another rant. 
they, the World Athletics IOC should be making these doubles doable to build up stars. Instead, they don't. They should be catering the schedules. They made Michael Johnson a historic star because he could do the 200, 400 double. Why can't Shawnee Miller Weibo be a star? One thing back, speaking of Cole Hawker, how did he only get 69th his freshman year at NCAAs in cross country? This guy was a footlocker champion. Now he's a 350 miler at age 19. I mean, I guess he was pretty young then, but what a talent. 69th isn't isn't that bad as a true freshman. It's not that bad, but when you're a footlocker champion and a 350 miler, that's called, that's the opposite of that bad. It's really good. I think you're overvaluing footlocker a little bit. How about I have another question, Oregon related. How many events in the distances are the Oregon men going to win? The number one seed in the 800 with Charlie Hunter, in the 3K with Kupatia, in the DMR, they have the collegiate record, and they're also the number one seed in the mile with Cole Hawker. I'm, I'm saying the over under at two and a half wins from that group. Are you guys going over or are you guys going under? I'm going under. I could see as few as one. Well, hear me out. Charlie Hunter is not an 800 meter runner. I mean, he was running 5Ks like a year ago. So he's run very fast, but is he an 800 meter runner? That's the knock there. We just talked how Sam Tanner could win. The 3K, Cooper Cheer is pretty good, but so are some of these other guys. Like, So he could get beat. I mean, that's your best one. The DMR, they got the best team. I don't know who's going to run it. So I assume, let's say, Tier's doing the 3K. So that means Tier's going to do 3K and DMR. Like, they're the huge favorites there. I think the DMR is the closest one to a lock, but anything can happen to a DMR. And then, I don't know. They're probably like 75% in a lot of these events. Probably 75% times four. Probably not that high, actually. Yeah, right at two and a half, John. That's pretty good. Robert, over or under? I think here's a lock for two. I'm going to go under on the next two. Oh, I don't think Hunter's winning it, and I don't think this – I mean, Cole Hawker. I'm going to look like a fool. He's either going to be – we're going to either going to be talking about him like Alan Webb next week or Sam Tanner's going to be the man. It's going to be interesting. Yeah, I think it's tough. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna call two, two wins, I think. Probably – well, I got no way. Hold on. Did I pick three? I think I picked three in my prediction contest, actually. So I think to honor that, you know, because I said in our preview, Hunter and Tia and the DMR, I guess I have to go over and say three. So that's my pick. Let's talk a little bit about the team battle. I normally say if you don't win your conference meet, I can't root for you. It really bothers me about our sport that. You can sort of be a middling conference team and really go to nationals. But this year, just to be contrary and give us something to, to talk about, I'm officially rooting for Texas A&M. They were eighth at the SEC meet, and I scored the descending order list, and they actually are tied at Oregon at 58 points. They only scored 38 points at SEC. This is the women's team, correct, Robert? Yes. How crazy would it be if they, if they win the meet? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of surprised they didn't double off thing, Mo. But hats off to Pat Henry for not abusing her. But it's just kind of interesting to look at. I mean, to think that they could pull that off. And one thing, you know, we had the, as the quote of the day today on the website with some quotes from the Arkansas coaches saying, like, we shouldn't have been forced to – we shouldn't have these championships so close together to be forced to pick one or the other or whatever. And the Arkansas women are going to try to do both. But I actually think that having the two meets together is helping the distance-focused schools because it makes it easier – for someone like Oregon, who's decided to go on and track to rack up the track distance points because some of the distance runners from BYU aren't there, for example. Jared Nagus, uh, I mean, Jared Nagus isn't there. 
so that totally opens up the DMR of the mile. And the same thing is true on the women's side for Arkansas. Arkansas women are, are benefiting from, from some of these people not being them, white being there. Like, so it's easier for them to score points. So if the people that should be complaining about it are the sprint coaches. I mean, it's diluted the meat in a weird way by having two distance runner meets back to back. You're actually helping the distance schools, which is kind of surprising because it's, I think it's the opposite of what I would have thought of if I hadn't really looked at it. I'm not sure I follow your whole argument there, Robert. Are you saying it's good for the schools that have a distance program and a track program? Or I don't totally get what you're trying to say here. I see what he's saying. He's saying this helps the distance track schools because the distance, other dis- half the distance runners are going to just focus on cross country. So if you want to go big on track, if you have a strong distance track squad, you're being rewarded more than you would in a normal year when it, there's going to be more bodies at NCAs and it's harder to score. And there's some truth to that. That doesn't make sense. But and it also helps the distance cross country only schools because they go all in across and they don't have now have to worry about Oregon. So it's like a, all these distance coaches get to pad their resumes. I don't think Mike Smith was losing any sleep about going up against Oregon and cross country. One actually, the, speaking of a team that is has athletes at both meets, I want to talk about the BYU women for a second because what they're doing is pretty crazy. That they were second last year in NCAA cross. And they wanted to, I think they ranked second again going in this year. And what their coach, Jill G. Taylor, did is before the season, she broke up her two groups. Her, she said, this, these half are going for NCAA indoors. This half is going for NCAA cross. And it kind of helped in that way because two of her top runners, Courtney Wayman and Olivia Hoge, they both only had indoor track eligibility. They weren't eligible for cross country. So... It was pretty easy to do for them. But then she had a few other women, Heather Hansen, Kate Hunter, Simone Plourd, who she decided, we're just going to do track. We're not going to do cross country. They all ended up qualifying in the mile. So she's got three of the top eight seeds in the mile. They've got the top seed in the 3K with Wayman and then the top, then fourth place with Hoge. And then they've got a whole distance squad who's in cross country, who's one of the, still one of the top teams, even without all of those women. So, to me, that's one of the most impressive feats that they've done is that they're going to be, you know, they're going to have a top distance squad in indoors, and they also could win NCAA cross uh, on Monday. But, John, they're ranked number two in the country for women, aren't they? Yes, they are. So they could win. So, actually, why are you praising them? What if they put a few more people over on the cross? Could they, would that help them? Are they hurting themselves? And the same thing can be said for Arkansas, right? Why aren't we talking about Arkansas? I don't see why Arkansas is not getting more attention. What am I missing? The Arkansas women are ranked number one in the country in cross country and track. And everyone's just assuming they're not going to do well in cross country. Yes. Well, I'll get to that in a second. But the, the point about BYU, the two women who could help the most, Courtney Wayman and Olivia Hoge, neither of them have eligibility. The only ones who have cross eligibility are these three milers. And I don't think, well, I don't think that they, that uh, Dilji Taylor maybe expected them to make the progress that they have this year on the track. So they, I think she's basically like, look, if we took them how fit they are right now and had them ran cross on this course, I don't know if they would help us that much. If they focused on that the whole season, Maybe. So maybe that would have helped beef up their four or five spot a little bit. I don't know. I just think what they've done is pretty crazy, pretty impressive. Arkansas, though, I did talk to Lance Harder, their coach. Now, they, they're trying to run both. They have a bunch of entries in the 
in the track meet. And Katie Izzo is the only one of their distance runners who doesn't have cross-country eligibility. She's the top seed in the 5K and number three in the 3K. But then other women like Lauren Gregory, Logan Morris, Abby Gray, uh, Chrissy Gear, they all have track eligibility, sorry, and cross-country, and they're going to run track first, and then they're going to try to run cross. And the reason why I don't think I'm too high on them in cross-country is because I asked Lance Harder, I'm like, all right, they're all doubling back. How do you think they'll do? And he was like, look, we've been training for for track all season. That's what we're focused on. We're going to go out. We're going to see whatever we have left. We're going to try to do it on Monday. But he essentially said he wasn't expecting that much. You know, he knows it's a tough course. He knows he's that they're all mentally and, you know, psychologically all in on this this track championship. So he's like, look, we're kind of going into cross with like the idea we have nothing to lose. But he didn't seem to be thinking. Maybe he's just trying to downplay it. There's chances. They are the defending national champions. They are number one in the polls. But he was like, well, the polls, we haven't raced a cross-country race since October when they won the SAC meet. So he thought that maybe the polls were out of date. But he didn't – if a coach is sort of downplaying someone's chances and he doesn't think they're going to do anything crazy, I usually don't get too excited about it either. Might be a smart way to take off some of the pressure. And I am so confused because I was thinking we, we just had conference meets, but like what Pac-12 had their conference meet last week, but SEC had their conference meet in October. Like it was just this is such a weird year. But I think it would be really cool if somehow they could pull both off. I mean, that's what we'll be talking about next week's podcast if it happens. So that, Kip2 trying to get double wins. Anyone who gets double wins or attempts them and comes close, I think it's a chance to be sort of an epic hero. Like back in the day, right, you could w- w- run the Division Two cross country, and then if you won, you got to go run the Division One like a day later, two days later, or a week later or something. That should be so cool. They should, they should still do that. Like it should be a feeder. You, you win D3, you can go to D2. Or you no, you win D three, you can go to D one. You know, like let's we'll give you your shot. You know, yeah, they did that back in the day. The D two and D three meets would be on Saturday, and NCAA the D one meet would be on Monday, and so the winners would get invited. And you know, it, it was obviously really tough. But I think I agree. Reinstate that policy. Move NCAA cross back to the, the D one cross back to the Monday. I do think if there's going to be a double winner, I think Wesley Kip two of Iowa State is the guy who's going to do it. He is the red hot favorite in the five thousand on Friday night, and then he will still be the – I think he's also – we all agree he's kind of the favorite in NCAA cross on Monday, and I think it is doable. He does have two days of rest in between. I mean, that's that's more than you get doing the 5K, 10K double at NCAA outdoors. So I think he has a good shot to win both, and it will be pretty legendary uh, if he pulls it off. All right, guys. I think that is enough NCAA indoor track talk. But we've got the voice of NCAA Cross Country up next, Bill Spaulding. We break down the NCAA Cross Country meet with him. He talks about broadcasting that. they got a huge production team, big budget for this, actually. And he even talks about broadcasting with Rojo and Apollo Ono. Not at the same time. Yeah, it's a great listen, folks. And we're excited about it, about Monday's broadcast, because it's the first time it's been on TV in, what, 11, 12 years. So it's going to be cool. And before the broadcast, VIP subscribers, remember, 12 noon Eastern, we're going to be doing our own pre-show to get you ready for the action. So until Monday, we'll talk to you later. Here's Bill Spalding. All right, guys. One of the most anticipated, probably, let's be honest, the most anticipated thing of the weekend for us at Let's Run is going to be the NCAA Cross Country Championships on Monday. The first time ever we've had it in March. 
but March is better than nothing. And for the first time in, since 2009, the meet is going to be on live TV. So we're excited about that. No stupid paywall. Live TV, ESPNU. And even more exciting is my old time, my old broadcast partner from the Ivy League broadcast, Bill Spaulding, will be doing the play-by-play. And we're excited to have Bill on right now, the voice of the NCAA cross-country. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Robert, how are you? Miss, uh, miss doing Ivy Heps with you. Hopefully, uh, hopefully next year we'll be back together again. That would be great. I'm afraid you've gone too big time for me now to be <laughs> doing lowly Ivy League meets. But uh, tell me, how much preparation, how much prep work have you done? Have you, I guess people don't know our history. Bill and I have done a number of Ivy League championships together, track and field, for, I don't know, what, five or six years probably. And the thing, Bill, that I love about you is I, I try to describe it to someone. I'm like, this guy's brain is so amazing. I said, you could line up 10 kids on a track and give them bib numbers one minute before the start. And he would instantly know who all 10 were, what lanes they were in and be able to, to redo it. So you're amazing at track, but I'm not sure about cross country, Bill. This is could be, could be new for you. Have you ever broadcast a cross country meet? I mean, you've done a lot of your professional play by play guy, but cross country is a totally. No, I mean, I've done everything from, as you know, like college track meets up through road races, up through marathons, like the last uh, pro running race I did before COVID uh, shut things down was the Tokyo Marathon, and then I've done a few of the USATF meets since. But this will be my first uh, college cross country meet. Um, you know the way I kind of attack the prep because honestly, with like 500 athletes, you could uh, be doing prep for years and still not have done as much prep as you could possibly do. Um, I have kind of ID'd like the top 12 teams. Now you could argue there's probably three or four that we're really going to be talking about on either side, but I did full bios on every one of the top seven runners for each of the top 12 teams on the men's and women's side. And then I did full bios on the top 25, in my opinion, individual runners. So there's some overlap there, but I think if I I have my document near me right now, it is, uh, I have 36 pages and 13,600 words as of right now with probably a little bit more still to to update in the next couple of days. But um, uh, no, I I think we feel good and ready to go. We've talked to a lot of the key, the key athletes and the the production crew has got a lot of great stuff built. So we're, we're ready to rumble. How long did it take you to assemble that document? Uh, it's been like a, a work in progress between this and some other things as I try to like work ahead on my show. So I've been, you know, piecemealing this with the notes I had for the short track speed skating world championships last week. And for a show I have next week over the last two or three weeks, um, you know, I'd say like maybe a month ago is when I put the first few things down on paper and uh, it's evolved since then, um, you know, a couple hours during the middle of the day, whenever I can. Um, and then uh, when my daughter's in bed uh, is when I kind of knock out a couple more hours each night on nights where I'm not going to other broadcasts. So it's been a, it's been a plod uh, plodding along, but I feel, again, I feel like I've gotten what I want down on paper and, and ready to roll now. We don't want to spoil the broadcast, but is there like a nugget that you've, or two that you can share with us? Like something fascinating you found out? Yeah. I mean, to me, maybe the most interesting person in this entire meet is uh, Isai Rodriguez uh, from Oklahoma State, just because his background is so um, different to the traditional track superstar. We just talked to him even more today. Um, he finished seventh as a freshman in Oklahoma State cross-country meet, and his high school did not have a cross-country team, and he had never really trained. He just decided, like, hey, I like to run 
from place to place. I'm going to go run and I'm going to run as hard as I can. And he finished seventh at the the state meet. And then he said after this, like, okay, maybe I'm actually good at this. Maybe I need to figure out how to do this. But even so, he said he didn't really have a coach until after his junior year of high school, his basketball coach was like, hey, you're, you're pretty good. Maybe I should call somebody and call the friend in Tulsa's athletic department who got him in touch with the Tulsa track coach who gave him an idea of like what type of like a, a real workout plan could be. So uh, again, you think of some of these kids who've been, uh, you know, running with great structured plans from the time they were 12 years old. He said basically his training until he got a real structured plan was he ran to school in the morning. He ran to the grocery store. If his mom needed him to go pick something up, he ran, um, he ran to his friend's houses when he wanted to hang out with them and uh, to make his running more difficult, which again, I do not recommend this. He would put um, bricks in his backpack as he went out to run. So that, that is how Isai Rodriguez got himself into a situation where I would say not that he's a favorite this weekend, but he is an outside contender, particularly on, uh, on his home course. That's remarkable. <laughs> There you you've revealed the secrets. Like like when Bill was talking about how much prep work he he had, I wish that the podcast listeners could see the look on Jonathan's face because there really are no secrets. I mean, I think even at Lodge Run, when our job is to follow track and field full time, I, I, I was like, look, you know, I understand running, but there's so many athletes. Unless you do the prep work, you really can't do a good broadcast. You can't do a, a good preview, a podcast, or whatever. You have to have access to stats and information. And, and that's why it's so easy to work with you because the research that you do for these meets is, is, is really impressive. So I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you aren't resting on your laurels, Bill, Bill, you're, well, thanks. you're going all in on cross country. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited. And again, there are a lot of stories like that. And um, you know, I think that this is going to be a super exciting meet because I know how you just said there are no secrets, but I feel like there is a whole lot of unknown going into this week just because you know, there's question marks about who's healthy and who ran when. And, you know, some of the top runners didn't run at their conference championships. But some of that is just because the way the schedule is condensed, you know, coaches felt like, why do we need to run somebody in this meet a week and a half before we then want to run them in, in, the, in the championship? So I think there's some people who there are a lot of question marks about it. Are they going to be there? And I think at the end of the day, most of the people that we have question marks about will be there and will be running. But I guess we won't really know how solid and how strong they are until they get out there. Throw in the question mark about, hey, if you run the 5,000 a couple days before it indoors, how are your legs going to be to run on what's probably going to be a really, really soggy course because it's going to rain all weekend in Oklahoma State, even if it's going to be sunny on, on Monday. And on what is also, from what everyone who's run on this course says, uh, one of the most, if not the most challenging NCAA championship level cross-country course that has ever been um at least in recent memory, been been run because of all the elevation change. Yeah, Jonathan was just telling me about that. I think Jonathan's going to be writing a story on the on the course soon. But you know, major storylines. I guess should we go through those, Jonathan, Bill? You guys have done the research. I'm generally generally get more 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 <laughs> advanced once I read Jonathan's preview. But um, it, it seems to me that. You know, you've got the men's and women's team winners and the men's and women's individual winners. There's really four stories at one of these competitions to focus on. Let's start with the men. BYU, NAU. Do either one of you guys see somebody else that could win this championship? I don't really. I think, you know, number three in the coaches poll is Arkansas. They seem like they're going all in on, on indoor track. Stanford, I mean, 
I don't know if they quite have the horses up front to go toe to toe with BYU and NAU. Those two teams are just so strong through their top three. They could easily, each team could easily have three guys in the top 10 and that's just basically impossible to beat. So I think one of the teams is going to have like three guys in the top 15 and whoever does that is probably going to win. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, I think that the men's race likely will be a, a two team race and will be really fun to kind of be able to keep our eyes really from the first kilometer on the B, BYU and NAU guys and hey where not just who's up top but where are their fourths where are their fifths because I think those two teams are close enough that it really could be does your fifth place runner finish 30th or does your fifth place runner finish 40th and that might be the difference um because you know you even go deeper down like NAU's roster and like their fourth Blaze Farrow he was 19th at the um, NCAAs two years ago so if he runs uh, and, and we've been told that he's in really good shape and running really well right now if he runs into the top 20 and he's there along with the other three uh, in Grialva, Young, and Noor that, that could all be in the top 10. I mean, you're not going to beat a team that has four in the top 20. But, I mean, you could argue that BYU, like you said, three in the top 10 or 15, their fourth is probably somewhere 2025. So I think the fifth is what really is going to be the big key between those two. On a perfect, perfect day for Stanford, maybe they can get in there and make things interesting. And I do think they've kind of separated themselves as a clear number three. But I would be shocked if it's not um NAU and BYU and in a really low sc- I, I think pretty low scoring uh just because of how, how good their their guys are on that side. Yeah, I, I think that's a good analysis. I mean one thing is teams could always have an off day. I, I think if NAU runs well, they win and they're pretty dominant. But at the same time, I mean they just lost their conference meet. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if a couple of those guys are banged up and were way off their game or DNFs. BYU could win by a lot as well. And then if, you know, obviously if, you know, it only takes one or two superstars having a bad day and then you open the game up for Stanford or somebody like that, but it's hard for two teams to both have a bad day. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a fair point. And I do think, you know, one of the questions for NAU was Luis Grialva, who was on the NCAA press conference yesterday and said, he's, you know, he could be, he could be playing games with us, but he did say he's totally healthy and just rested that, that, meet for NAU. So if that's the case, if he is totally healthy, I mean, you're talking about a top three guy for sure right there. And that's the entire reason why they didn't win that big sky championship. I think they just didn't prioritize it in comparison to maybe an average year in a a normal season. But uh, yeah, I I think, um, you know, I think it's going to be really interesting. If you talk to Ed Eyestone, which we have, he's trying to play the underdog card still for BYU. I have a hard time uh, buying that when they're you know number one in the coaches poll you've got Mance leading the way and you're the defending champions but he he has his guys believing and we talked to Connor Mance this week uh uh in part of our preparation and and they're running still with that chip on their shoulder that they think that they're the underdog and everyone thinks NAU is going to win so I guess whatever you need to do to motivate your group but uh but I I I have a hard time buying the the underdog talk that that Ed Eistone's trying to sell, but I totally understand why as a coach you, you you try to sell that. Bill, can I jump in? So I'm curious if this applies to other sports. I've never covered short track speed skating or ski jumping, but every single runner says they're not injured and they're ready to go. So I'm wondering if that's the case in other sports because what's one? But I'm kind of curious. Like, are there differences? You know, and how I guess there probably is a culture of every sport, but I swear runners love to say, Oh, I'm ready to go. I'm healthy. 
And then after the fact, you're like, oh, no, they had a stress fracture. No, I, I buy that. Every, I think in any sport, it's like that. You don't want to give anything away. To me, honestly, the bigger indication that he is actually healthy is that he was on the NCAA press call because, um, you know, what I've found is if people are actually not that healthy and don't want to have to answer questions about that um, they, because they don't want to flat out lie to you, that they'll, you know, just their school won't make them available during during the week as someone that you can talk to. Uh, so that would be the one thing that makes me think that that he is uh, he is ready to go because he was made available and, and things like that. But no, I think sport to sport across the board, people are going to cover uh, and, and, and don't want to give anything away. I, I think similarly, in the press conference yesterday when Wesley Kiptu said that he wasn't going to go out and try to try to run hard from the start and lead the race. And he was going to sit in the pack for the first 5k. I don't think that many people are really buying that either. So, so uh, just not trying to give, give the game away the week before the race, I guess. Well, it's interesting. Well, and you asked about the injuries because there is one athlete on the women's side, Whitney Orton in the full, I think people would have said, Hey, she's the NCAA favorite. She won on this course at the OSU Invitational back in October. She has not raced since. Her coach, Diljeet Taylor, told me she is running the meet. And she, Diljeet Taylor, I asked her, like, is she going to be 100%? And she, in you know, I commend her for the honesty here. She said, no, like, she's not going to be at her best, but she's going to give us everything she has. So that I find is interesting because if she was at her best, she might be the favorite to win this. And we don't know quite what level we're going to see out of her, and that's going to make or break the team race as well. Yeah, and and I think if if we flip if we're flipping to the women's team race here, I I have, I think it is a, that is a much harder race to really figure out because I think honestly it's going to be a really high scoring race, and I think most of the coaches have even um, acknowledged that just because I think all of the top teams they've got a couple top runners, but they don't have any like. I don't think there's any team that's going to put three in the top 10, like we might see on the men's race. And I don't think there's any team that has a fifth that's going to finish in the top 30 even. So, you know, on paper, I think Stanford's looked really, really good in the Pac-12 and what they're getting from Zofia Dudek is, is huge as a freshman along with Ella Donahue and what they got from Christina Aragon. If they can get that from her, uh, she finished 12th in the, in the Pac-12 championship. If she can do, a solid run like that coming back as a fifth year and can be their really strong fifth and say, get into the top 30. Then, then I think Stanford maybe is the, the team to beat there. Um, but, you know, you put that aside, I think you got Stanford, you got BYU. Um, you know, I think there's four or five other teams that have realistic chances on a good day of making a run up to the podium as well. And again, I think that's one where, I'm really grateful that we're going to have some pretty solid technology that'll be keeping tabs of the team score every, every K throughout the race. Because I think the real race there, once you get past who's going to win the national championship, isn't going to be in the first pack or maybe even the second pack. It's going to be back in runners, you know, 45 through 65. And that's where we're going to figure out who, who wins the, the women's team race. Yeah. And, and that far back, you know, if you're, you know, and that's in the team scoring. So they might be in the eighties and the hundreds and individual scoring and, and, Although I guess this year there's not as many individuals that are as good as normal year, but you know you can pass 10, 15 people in the last kilometer because they're they're much you know closer together. Um, John, in your mind, is there a how do you see the women's team race breaking down? I think it's. I mean, yeah, I think it's very open. Uh, I would say the two teams. If I had to bet on like two teams, I'd say either BYU or Stanford because, like you said. I mean, Christina Aragon, she's a fantastic 1500 runner. She's super talented. And if she's your number five at the conference meet, I mean, that's, you know, that, that's a that's pretty enviable depth. But, you know, you got to come out and replicate it. And then BYU, I just think, depending on what they get out of Whitney Orton, if she's like a top 
10 for them or maybe even top 20. I think they're also a very solid team. And it's pretty impressive, actually, how they've rebuilt. For, they were runner-up last year. They lost they had two, they had three women in the top 10. They lost two of them due to eligibility. And yet they still have a chance to win it all. I think it's just been a great coaching job by Diljeet Taylor. But I think those are the two teams I'm sort of zeroing in on. Yeah, and then I think New Mexico is another team that on a, on a really good day um, could be right up there in the thick of it as well. And, and that's another team that's like totally retooled with transfers and and folks that weren't in the mix last year that I think will be right in the thick of things. And then, uh, you know, we talked to Michael Smith this week from NAU and he, he wants some love and I think they deserve it for his, his women's team that has really uh, the last couple of years taken huge strides forward. And he thinks, you know, that on a perfect day, they could be a podium team this year, definitely a top five to top seven team. And he thinks that they're on the trajectory. Now they have the same culture the men's teams built that, um, you know, if the men's team can be so successful there, why can't the women's team? So I think that's a team to watch into the next couple of years as well, as they start to build their, their women's program up. Now, Bill, has someone told you the secret, unlike every other sport in the world, the podium at NCAA cross country is not three deep. It's, it's two, it's four, two deep. Four yes. Deep. Four deep. Yeah. Sorry. Four deep. Yes. But it's very weird. Like, fourth is viewed as like the bronze medal even yeah it's it's interesting though you know i think like podiums are great it, it's all perspective so like for any women if they finish fourth and get on the podium that is a huge step for them because it's not something that they've really done much of and is a sign of like the progress they're making you know ed eyestone was telling us though this week that once you win all of a sudden you realize the massive difference between being on the podium and winning it's just it's totally different. And, uh, you know, I think that's, so I think for the teams that have been there and done that for, especially in that men's race, NAU or BYU, there's no, uh, satisfaction for, for second. There's no satisfaction for, Oh, we had a solid day and we end up on the podium. The, the gap between first and second, especially in a team race, like cross country, I think is so, so much further even than the gap between like first and second on an indoor or outdoor meet. All right, let's turn to the individual race. Um, so let's start with the men. I mean, Wesley Kiptu should be winning the 5,000 in Arkansas on, what, I guess Friday night, trying to come back and complete the double. I think he has to be considered the favorite, but there's some interesting storylines. I mean, could we haven't had an American winner, what, in 11 years? I think that's right. And could we have a freshman American winner? Nico Young is incredible, doing super, super well. No, an American freshman hasn't won it since Bob Kennedy 32 years ago. And since Kennedy won it 32 years ago, we've only had seven Americans, you know, win the t- individual men's title. Kennedy, Goucher, Torres, Ritzenheim, Rowatinsky, McDougal, and Rupp. So we had three in a row there, Rowatinsky, McDougal, and Rupp, and then it's been a long time coming. But, um, you know, it, I, I guess if, if, if Nico Young doesn't win it, he's probably not even the best guy on his team, but it, it could be another NAU guy. Yeah, I, th- I think it's going to be really interesting to see, first off, how Kip 2's legs hold up. Like, I mean, you know, you know, I was talking with my analyst, Carrie Tollefson, about that. And she's like, it could go different ways just based on how his body is. Because, you know, sometimes you have a meet, you run a hard five a couple days before you run your 10. And that, that hard five ends up putting you in a position where you end up feeling even stronger. But other times you come out and right off the bat, your legs feel really heavy. I think the big X factor with that for everybody that is going to be doubling is the weather um, because the amount of rain that we're going to get Friday, Saturday, Sunday, if that really mucks up the course for Monday, take that 10 K and then take that 10 K in the mud. I think that just makes it even harder for the the folks that are doubling. That being said, I, I it's, 
still hard to to bet against Wesley Kiptu the way he's been running. And, um, you know, we joked about it a bit. Every race that he's run this year, he basically goes to the front red lines early and just pushes it. He's saying he's not going to go do that here. But if we don't see him go out in the first few hundred meters, I'll be I'll be shocked. I think he's going to try to push the pace, um, you know, and then it, it is, yeah, is, is Nico Young uh, ready to roll? Uh, you know, when I talked to, to Michael Smith, he said, you know, the, the big difference for him, he said, you get a lot of kids who are great high school runners, but then they get to the college level where it's a little harder and things are different. And mentally, they aren't ready to live up to the expectations. He said that, uh, you know, Nico Young has just knocked out the mental part of it. Like he has handled the expectations with with such grace and is so prepared and so poised to handle those that it's really allowed them to just keep focusing on his physical potential and his physical talent. And that's what's put him in position where I don't think the stage is going to be too bright for him, uh, which, which again puts him in the conversation with like four or five other guys. But like you said, uh, you know, you could argue he's not the best runner on his team with Luis Grialvo who's going to be right up there and who has won on this course. He beat Connor Mance actually head to head on this course uh, when they had that big Oklahoma state meet, in the fall. Um, so, you know, I think there's, if I had to pick, I'd say there's probably four or five guys that I expect to be out in really contending for the win. I think like Kipju will be there. I think Mats will be there. I think Grialva and Nico Young will be there. And then the question is, who's that fifth? Is it, is it a guy like Isai Rodriguez who, who knows that course from Oklahoma state and seems to be a game day performer? Does he, does he just like will himself to be in that race? Um, but uh, yeah, it's going to be exciting. And again, like like we've talked about with the BYU NAU team race, um, you know, if we get a lead pack and say Connor Mance is in there with with a couple of NAU guys, the difference in the team race could really be like, does if there's a three or four person pack that breaks up down the finishing stretch, does Connor Mance take first or does he take fourth? And do the two NAU guys finish before him or behind him? That could make the difference as you're trying to stack up the team race behind. And Robert, I think the big question here is like, Kip to, if he goes out as we think he will and takes it just from the scruff of the neck, does anyone go with him? Because some of the splits he has registered, I was talking to Dave Smith from Oklahoma State, and I think when Kip to ran this course before back in the fall, he told me he came through 3K in like 8.03. I mean, that is just ridiculous for a first 3K. That's like sub-27 pace for 10K. So if he goes out that fast, I don't think anyone's going to go with him. But, you know, he'll be slowed a little by the weather. But I'm just going to be fascinated. Will Grialva, will Mance, will Nico Young, will any of these guys be bold enough to go out with Kip to if he does take it out? Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's that's the big question. And, you know, I think the tough situation for the guys from NAU and BYU particularly is you in the back of your head have to have a little bit of the calculus that you can't burn yourself out, blow up and cost your team as well. So you can't totally take the risk the way, like maybe uh, when I talked to Isai Rodriguez today, he, he said that, you know, at the end of the day, he's a little more freed. Oklahoma state's got a good team. They're not going to be contending for a championship. So, so he can run for that individual championship. He can take the risks if he wants to try and, go with Kip too early. But if, if you're Connor Mance or if you're Luis Grialva or Nico Young, do you risk redlining early, exploding and finishing 10 or 15 places further back than than you should have if you ran a smarter race and cost your team a championship? That That is the really tough and really, honestly, to me, really fun part of the race is how do you approach those tactics? Yeah, I hope the guys on the, on the, on the team's top team still do, do go for it. But if, if that's why I would tell Kip to go out and, and say, dare anyone to come with you? Cause it does put that risk in there. You know I mean? There is the top 10 or 15 is generally pretty spread out. I mean, I was looking at it in 2019, the difference between first and Edwin Kerr got 
and you know, in 10th place was 26 seconds. So even if you blow up a little bit, there is some room for error. Whereas if you're in the 20 range, there's no room for error. If you blow up 20 seconds, it's going to kill you in the team title. But, um, you know, it's interesting in BYU. I mean, they do have, we keep talking about young, but we have, they've got three guys that ran faster than Kip two, three guys that would be the top three seeds in the 5,000. They all ran under 1330, you know? So it's pretty, pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're deep. And, and I think, uh, honestly, because we talked so much about Connor Mance, I don't think Casey Klinger gets talked about enough. Um, and I think that that's, again, that's a big X factor. Is he, does he run into the top five? That puts, if he does, that puts BYU in great shape. Is he 15th? Then that's a little harder for BYU to, to overcome. I, uh, uh, but, you know, um, he's also someone who has benefited a bit from the cross country being moved into the, the springtime when, when I was talking with that ice stone this week. He said he was in good shape in the fall, but the fall was a little less than a year coming back from his, uh, his two years away on his LDS mission. He said he's in even better shape now because he's had the extra time to, to get back and really train hard and run hard. So, you know, maybe BYU does benefit a bit from this being a, a spring championship instead of a fall championship. All right. What about the women's individual race? This is why I need you guys help. I have not educated myself yet. Jonathan, give us the leading contenders there. I mean, Robert, I feel like you can throw a dot here. There is, this is as open a women's championship as I can recall individually. I mean, they're, you know, Ella Donahue, she's someone that a lot of people thought, oh, she might be the, the woman to beat. And then she gets beat at uh, Pac-12s. So, you know, she she's in the mix. Uh, but she might not even be the best time. I mean, Zofia Dudek's also really good from Stanford as well. So they've got a few top women. Um, if you look at some of the other, I mean, Orton, she would have been the favorite, I think. But I, I, don't, I don't trust her to win, given the health concerns that she, you know, she hasn't raced since October. And then... I mean, Kaylee Logue, the Big 12 champ from Iowa State. Haley Herberg, she won. She upset Donahue at Pac-12s. I mean, I feel like there's probably a, a dozen people who could win this race. I don't know if you feel similarly, Bill. Yeah, I, I think if I had to pick one, I still think it's Donahue. And I think some of it is, honestly, from what I've heard from her coming out of Pac-12, you know, the, the biggest mistake that that she made, and she's been very open about it and how she's learned from it is, she let Haley Herberg get away by 25 seconds early and just put herself in a position where she had to use so much energy to get back. And she did get back. She came all the way back and, and caught her in the final couple hundred meters. But then, you know, the wheels basically fell off after using all that energy and Herberg was able to pull away again. Um, if you see someone like that, make that move again, Ella Donahue going with her this time. I think she's been pretty clear about that. She's not going to let anybody get away early. And uh, interestingly, I talked to her yesterday. She said, as weird as it sounds, that race actually gave her more confidence than any previous race in her career because she realized she was strong enough to make up a deficit like that. She made up 19 seconds in the last 2K. Um, so I think like they understand the tactics weren't great there and the tactics will be better this time around. But sh- strength and fitness-wise, she feels like she's in really good uh, prime positioning to to have a strong performance. So I think I, I really like like her there. But But yeah, I mean, you know... Um, I could rattle off 15 names of people who might have a chance and it wouldn't be shocking if any of them won. You know, I think, uh, like you said, Sophia Dudek, I think is a huge X factor, just how good she's been, how quickly and how she seems to keep getting better rapidly. And she's raced in some big races representing Poland in the past. So I don't really think that uh, this is going to be a a spotlight that's too intense for her. Um, You know, you've got uh, Mercy Shalangat from 
uh, from Alabama, the SEC cross-country champion. Bethany Haas from the, the Big Ten from Minnesota won that championship. She is doubling this week, so I think that's going to be a bit of a challenge for her. And uh, a dark horse that I'm keeping an eye on here as well is uh, Taryn O'Neill from from NAU, the, the Big Sky champ. Uh, first off, she's going to be very easy to pick out. So uh, she has a shaved head and a, a Batman tattoo on her head right now, so you're not going to you're not going to miss her out there. Um, uh, but secondly, she's been kind of like the galvanizing force of this resurgence for NAU after transferring from from Villanova. And when I talked to Michael Smith, I just got the feeling that he thought she was ready for a really, really big, big coming out party this weekend. And so I'm excited to see how how she runs as well. But if I had to pick, I would say not knowing Orton's health puts Donahue at the very top of what is a very close pecking order. One more thing I got to say about Donahue, you know, Robert, that I like to pump up Dartmouth cross country when I can. I'm not sure if you came across this in your research, Bill, but she is the daughter of Michael Donahue, who was an All-American for Dartmouth's great teams in the 1980s. He was 28th at the 1987 ncaa meet where dartmouth finished second so uh she has some good bloodlines you know the other nice thing for her too that uh, i think has helped her a lot this year is she said as a fifth year at stanford she basically has like hardly any coursework left so she said she's almost getting to feel what it's like to be a professional runner and the biggest thing that she said has helped her a lot is she's when she was home over like winter break she decided to start sleeping like a professional runner and she's been able to keep that uh sleep schedule at stanford so she said she's just recovering better than she's ever uh ever recovered in her life and a big reason why is because uh, you don't hear this very often but she said she has quote a, a, a chill course load at stanford this this year well that's good to hear bill that's 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 the reason the three of us use for our poor you know collegiate careers well i didn't even have a collegiate career but the academics the ivy league type academics were too tough for us but i'm glad you guys thought it was wide open because when you know when i i have let the 2019 results pulled up and it's all seniors or people that have gone pro you know the only two people back from the top 10 the last time they had the championships is War- is Orton and Donahue. So it makes sense that they're two of the people you expect to contend. And then to me, the wild card that I've been looking at, not for the individual win, but perhaps for the team title is Jessica Lawson of Stanford. I mean, she's the third returner. She was way back on the team and just every week is getting better and better. I mean, she was 11th at NCAAs. She was only at ninth at, at PAC 12s last week, but she keeps improving. You know, the talent is there. So she could be a, a big factor sort of in, in the team title. Yeah, and Stanford's honestly their their big strength, Robert, is just they're so experienced. Outside of you know Dudek being a freshman, but a super experienced freshman, you think of all the things she's done. I mean, if you're relying on Donahue, a fifth year, Aragon, who's a fifth year, Lawson, who's a senior, people have been in these big races before. Like they may or may not have great days, but the reason that they don't have a great day if they don't is not going to be because the moment was too too big for them. They've been in big moments like like this before. All right, Bill, before you go, I want to talk a little inside baseball. I want to know the logistics of, yeah. of, the, of the broadcasting and how this works. I mean, I've done track with you before, and you know, I'll have 50 or 60 pages of notes, sometimes even more, because there's 30 events, so even 100 pages of notes. Uh, but that's easy because you have a, every events every 10 minutes. You go to the next event. You get your next notes out. How are you going to manage 50 pages of notes? It's a live race. It's all over – you know, it's basically like, like slamming 20 track meets into one 30 minute window. How is it organized? And plus, they're not all going to have bib numbers on. It's not like there's eight people in the lane. How are you going to recognize which of the 200 people are up in this lead pack? Yeah. So there are going to be some, like, they do obviously have their their numbers in the front, which will help some. But uh, um, I think, like, again, at this point, I know what the, 
the favorites look like. I know what the teams are going to be wearing. Uh, so that's helpful. Uh, I've got going to have my notes in a binder, but I'll have little tabs. So I know like, you know, I have them sorted by team, but then I also have the contenders page so I can flip quickly back and forth between teams and contenders. And then honestly, like a lot of the work in the lifting to make it easy for everyone who's watching is our tech team, which is our tech team is going to be great. Um, Tim Lay is running the show. He's from Tracktown Productions. Uh, I mean, we're really excited about what we've got coming from a tech side. And I think uh, so little inside baseball is that all of us have agreed to be part of this for the four years that uh, is currently agreed to with with um, with ESPN at this point. So I think we all are looking at this. We, we're going to put on a really good show, but we're also going to learn a lot from this one so that we can keep making the product better each year moving forward. Um, but, you know, the, the, the big thing right off the bat um, is we're going to have uh, – you know, we have tech, graphic technology that is going to allow us at every K to not just give you who, where everyone's positioned individually, but um, the, the full team picture as well. So very early on, we should be able to identify, okay, like BYU and NAU are within a couple points of each other and their fifth place runners are both in the same pack back in 40th place. And we'll know that on top of all the camera resources we have focused on the front, uh, our production team is really looking at this as like, look, the individual winner is great, but the real story is who wins the team. And that's the story that we want to tell the most. So I think you will see a decent amount of coverage that is going to be trying to find those guys that aren't just up at the front, but are a ways back in the packs so that we're, we're doing justice that race within the race as well. And not only focusing on the guys out, out in front, because I think for us, the biggest goal, like, yeah, we're going to get excited for whoever wins the individual title, but the race doesn't end there. It doesn't, it doesn't climax. It doesn't even climax at that point. The race climax is, with the team championship. So um, even after you see the, the winner cross, I know um, sometimes some broadcasts will cut away and they'll focus on the winner and they'll forget to show you everybody else is coming across. Our goal and our plan is to actually, by the time that happens, have a three box on your screen. So ideally we're going to have, uh, we'll have one camera that goes with the winner. We'll eventually have an interview with the winner, et cetera. But then we're going to have a second box that is on the finish line. So you can see everybody coming across finishing and we're going to have a third box uh, we'll be able to identify within the last couple of kilometers where those key runners for the key teams are. And we're going to have a couple of camera resources out there following along those, you know, the fifth runner for BYU or the fifth runner for NAU or things like that. So we can watch that, that battle as well. And I think that will go a long way in, in helping not just myself, John Anderson and Carrie stay on top of everything, but helping folks at home, um, stay on top of everything as well. Um, so it, that's amazing. I mean, because really, that makes it sound like it kind of reminds me of the NFL in the sense of, to me, the at-home product for the NFL is better than being at the game because there's stuff you see there at home that you don't see at the game. And nowhere really, even coaches, no one has really gotten this experience before being able to follow the fifth, you know, the end of the team battle. Like a lot of times the race ends is and the coaches there are sitting themselves thinking like, oh, I think we won, but we don't know. So that should be, should, should be and, and our technology, like, honestly, it won't be official, but we should have an unofficial winner for you almost instantly when they cross, when the teams, the fifth runner for those teams crosses the line, because the way that'll be working is um, it'll keep reshuffling until you get five runners across the line uh, at each kilometer and then at the finish line as well. And then we'll start to be giving you the results each step of the way. So I don't think there should be, obviously we'll have to wait a while for things to be confirmed officially, but I don't think we should be waiting, going to a commercial break, not knowing who the team winner was, because I think we should have that for you pretty, pretty quickly. Um, 
and you know, there, obviously there are some caveats to everything that we're hoping to do. If the weather's terrible or if it's super windy, it's, it is Oklahoma in March. So the wind is probably going to howl up. That could affect the type of coverage. Our drones, we have a couple of drones that are supposed to be part of the coverage following the race from up above, you know? So if, if it's too windy and the drones can't fly, that's going to knock a few things out, but the, the great camera resources, um, you know, a really good plan. We've had tons of, of, of conversations as a whole group. And I thank uh, the folks at the USA uh, cross country and track and field coaches association. Who's re- who've really put a lot into this. We've been talking about this for months about the best way to, to put this together. So we're, we're really hoping to give everyone a good show and a show that maybe is in a way they haven't really been able to see it before. Um, but again, this is only our first one and, and we think we'll be able to keep making it better uh, each of the next few years as well. well that's amazing. I'm curious how, how does how does the broadcast team get picked? Um, you know, does ESPN pick it? Does Tracktown pick pick it? I mean, I, the thing that struck me was that there's more. I mean, John Anderson. I'm great. I'm glad that he's got a track and field background and that he's big at ESPN and is into track and doing these events. But it struck me as weird because you're a play by play guy. John is more a studio play by play guy, not really a color guy. There's only one color commentator, more two by two play by play. Yeah, but so so I think the way that we looked at it, um, to answer your question simply, I think um, I was hired by the USA Track and Field and Cross Country Coach Association. So they're the ones who made the deal with ESPN. They're the ones who are like funding the broadcast. Um, I'm sure ESPN had to sign off on it, but um, I had uh, uh, crossed paths doing an NCAA regional in Kentucky a few years ago with Sam, who who is in charge of the, that group and he called me a couple of years later to say, Hey, we're, we're thinking of doing this. We'd love you to be a part of it. And, uh, you know, now it's a year and a half later because it was originally supposed to be last fall, not now. But, um, uh, so I think he, I think he and they decided, or that's, that's who figured the talent out. I think, you know, we also, we're, we're going to be on the air, you know, 25 minutes before the first race. Um, so I think, um, you know, John and I are both going to be, John's, super suited for all of the pre-race stuff. Like I think he'll definitely take charge in the pre-race and post-race stuff. But I think in the flow of the race, the way that they've thought of it and that John and I have thought of it as well is that there is so much going on in a cross country race that to have two play by play focused people is, is actually a positive thing because, you know, between the two of us, we should be able to have our hands on everything that's, that's going on. So I'm sure we'll, we'll really iron out exactly all of our specific roles over the next few days. But I think the thought is that both of us, it's an extra set of eyes. It's an extra set of like focus. And it's, you know, it is, as you know, Robert, when we've done 10 K races before, it's a lot more conversation than it is, uh, you know, calling every stride. So I think, uh, I think the three of us together, it'll be a good set conversation. And uh, you know, John's, John's knowledge of the coaches is invaluable as well. He's been a great resource to our entire team with his, um, his links to all of the coaches around uh, college track and, and getting us a lot of access and a lot of good answers and things like that too. Well, we're excited for it, Bill. It's great. Yeah, I'm excited too. I'm really looking forward to it. I, you know, knock on wood. It, I know it was going to rain this weekend, but it looks like it should be a beautiful, uh, beautiful day uh, Monday. So it should be a comfortable day for the runners as well. And Hey, uh, OSU did talk a lot about how well their course is supposed to drain. So maybe, uh, this is the, the real test, but maybe it won't be as muddy as we all think it will be if their, uh, Bermuda grass and drainage system stands up. Yeah. Well, Roger, I think this is good news because I was really bummed. This is the first time let's run won't be on the ground at NCAA cross for, for years. Certainly since I started working for you guys, I have to, I've been forced to watch it on TV, but now it seems like we've got a top notch broadcast with people who 
love the sport and want to see it presented well. So I think that's great news for everyone who's going to be watching this from home. Thanks. Yeah, that's that's the plan. And, and uh, again, we're really excited about it, but we also will appreciate any feedback that folks have afterwards and know you guys will have some because uh like we said this is we're not looking at this as a finished product we're we're, you know we're going to be in tallahassee in november and uh um, keep on rolling from there so we want to make this uh the the best viewing experience possible well bill just i think your the advice i would give is next year say i'm not coming back unless i bring robert with me (laughs) (laughs) i i think you overestimate how much sway i have robert well you know i'm proud for you but well 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 then actually thought he was he was uh criticizing me last week he's like you've been exposed you're the bill belichick of the relationship he's tom brady i said well hey bill belichick i'm happy to be considered to be bill belichick of the relationship so <laughs> yeah yeah and, and i'm definitely not tom brady so uh, but I'll, I'll take it if we want to go back to our heps day I, I, can i be the uh the gabby thomas of our of our team i'll win eight million heps titles i'll take it pretty, yeah. pretty darn good well, why don't you sh- share with people the stat that you gave me one time i remember one time we finished a broadcast and i was like Dang, I, I did. I, I literally, I would spend about a week worth of prep work for an Ivy League broadcast, but I'm like, I didn't use any of my information. And you had some stat about what percent of, of, of the research you do actually ends up on air. So Sean McDonough said this, and I think I would say that from my experience now, he said this back when I was in college, but uh, I would say it kind of pans out. Uh, if you've prepared well, you use about 10% of what you've prepared and you don't end up using about 90% of it, but you never know which 10% you're going to need to use. So that's why you need to have the full 100% of it because you don't want to have only prepared 50% of the 100% you prepared and then have the 10% you needed coming from the, the other 50%. So, uh, um, you know, I always look at it. That's how, you, you know, I didn't grow up in track. So when I'm doing track broadcasts, particularly, I think I've made up for maybe what I missed growing up in track by researching it. Um, and then, you know, I think that's also a way you separate yourself. Like, I am of the belief that any idiot can call people running around and like capably can capably say, Hey, this person isn't first and this person isn't second, but how do you separate yourself? It's by saying like, you know, having the things that are interesting that people haven't heard before and that, you know, make a much more dynamic broadcast than just saying, Oh, he's in first and he's in second. And a minute later, he's in first and he's in second. A minute later, he's in first and he's in second. You know, you got to keep it interesting and vary it throughout. Yeah. I think, you know what, you, you, you have good questions. I thought, I mean, when, when we did our first broadcast, my wife listened to part of it and she thought you were a friend of mine because, you know, it was just easy to talk to. So. In TV play by play, they do tell you your only real job is to make your analysts sound smart. So, uh, so it seems like, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge with you, Robert, but, uh, but I think yeah, we've well, been able to accomplish it. <laughs> well, jo- Jonathan Gold, that's, that's his job. The, the truth is finally coming out. Bill earlier said Robert's, overestimating how much sway Bill has. I think Robert's overestimating how much Bill thinks of him. <laughs> no, I love, I love working with Robert and I tell, uh, I tell everybody it's, it's always uh, a blast to do shows with Robert. And uh, I've also always said, you know, at the end of the day, having a dist- if you had to choose one analyst, having an analyst who is an expert in the distance races, particularly at college meets is huge because obviously that's where you're going to spend the bulk of your time talking. So, uh, um, now that's no disrespect to, in my opinion, the best analyst in any sport, which is Otto Bolden. Uh, but but uh, if you're doing a college meet, it's it's nice to have a distance distance analyst with you. Yeah, Otto did some distance running at the Arkansas indoor meets 
And he finally started commenting on the dis- dis- distance stuff. I'm like, he's got to. Like, open your mouth. He's got interesting stuff to say. I think he was afraid to say stuff about the distance races. And he did on some of these past meets, and I thought it was pretty good. And this, this I don't know if you saw, Bill, but last week we made our foray into bod- broadcasting. It was with a – our first race on Let's Run.com was a two-person women's 5,000 meters. It, it was riveting, riveting. Awesome. I'll have to, uh, I'll have to watch it. Maybe skip to the men's race. I think we did a little better <laughs> job with that one. You had to you had to warm up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's only two people, so it made it easy, sort of figuring out the kinks because we we didn't know what we were doing. But I'm amazed just even listening to you talk to this because I've heard about the preparation from Robert, but you're able to call the recall the information. I don't know if you're looking it up while you're talking to us, but it's amazing. Like you went through like Sanford's team and the rebuilding NAU team and the the, the Batman tattoo, and I'm just like, how is he pulling this stuff up? Like. Because some of the stuff can't be, you know, you're, you're broadcasting with Apollo Ono last week. It's, it's just not your your day to day. Yeah. So I would say like, um, you know, the same way that like, you know, you can work yourself into being a pretty good runner, but there needs to be some uh, natural physical talent there. If you talk to most of the broadcasters who make it at a very high level, we're all a little freakish when it comes to our me- our memories or things like that. So I am fortunate that, you know, when I do the preparation it helps to have it. And sometimes I need to look things up, but a lot of it sticks as well. Um, so that, which, which to answer Robert's question about, you know, when you've got a hundred people going at once and you're trying to sort through your pages, I'll have to do that sometimes, but sometimes I'll remember what I did without having to look it up, which is helpful in those situations as well. Yeah. That's the difference between you and me, Bill. If my binder blows away, well, that's why I do it on Google docs because then I can at least look it up online. Cause it, you know, if the binder blew away in a windstorm, which happens in outdoor track meets, most of that information is, is bye-bye. So I did have one, one lacrosse game at Harvard a few years ago where we were outdoors in February and a wind gust blew my like paper chart, which I have for a sport like lacrosse that has all the players numbers and things on it blew it away like midway through the second quarter and at first I was panicking, but all of a sudden I was like, okay, it's, we've done enough of the game. I actually like, remembered who was who, uh, and it ended up being okay. And if you were at home, you probably, I knew the difference, but if you were at home, you probably didn't know the difference. So yeah, sometimes it's, it's, uh, it's fortunate to have a freakish memory like I have, whether my wife likes it or not. So, Well, good stuff. We'll let you go, but you know you have uh, childcare duties. Yeah, thank you guys. I really appreciate having me on and uh, we're really excited for Monday. So I hope you all enjoy the show. And I think uh, as Jonathan said as well, it, it's it's going to be really interesting because, you know, two very different races on the men's and the women's side, but both with uh, um, di- really different, interesting things to watch that'll keep things uh, fun for the whole the whole two hours. Best of luck to you, Bill. Thank you.